Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. On episode four of the Irish Economics podcast, we discuss behavioral economics, the psychology of decision making. Do economists understand how we make our decisions? Welcome to episode four of the Irish Economics Podcast. In this episode, we'll be discussing behavioural economics, uh, that is, the psychology behind our decision making. So why is this interesting? Well, economics has a reputation for simplifying human decision making, assuming that people are rational, that we can perfectly process all the details like a computer and come up with the best outcome. Or in economics jargon, we can maximise our utility. Of course, psychologists know otherwise, and this episode wishes to delve deeper into, well, what do economists know about decision-making? So to answer that question, I'm joined by Professor Liam Delaney. Liam is AIB Chair of Behavioural Economics at the UCD Geary Institute. Liam breaks down the history of economic thought, explaining how economics parted ways with psychology in the early days of the discipline, only for them to be reunited in recent times. Liam's crash course involves a detour to discuss Longford's own Francis Isidro Edward. It's interesting to hear about an Irish economist, especially one from Longford, who's often overshadowed by his Aunt Maria. We then dig into the psychology behind decision making. What are the factors that limit our understanding? How can governments or indeed corporations nudge us towards making certain outcomes? And what are the ethics surrounding this nudging behaviour? We then wrap up by discussing how working in this field has affected decision-making in Liam's own life. Okay, Liam Delaney, great to have you here on the Irish Economics Podcast on this discussion about behavioural economics. So this is a conversation I've been looking forward to, and I think it's something that would be interesting for uh, economists and non-economists alike. So I suppose the first thing that would be interesting to discuss is what exactly is behavioural economics and why is this different to standard economics? It's a good question. I mean, behavioural economics, um, the term has been used quite commonly now for the last 30 years, really to describe a, a type of research that emerged uh, bringing psychology into uh, economics. So people like Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize uh, in 2002, and Richard Totter, who won the Nobel Prize last year, associate with a, 
um, uh, an idea that you know rational choice uh, um, assumptions in economics were were needed to be sort of overturned and, and a model built that was more realistic. But if if you look back all the way through the history of economics, there's always been an argument about how you model consumers and firms like are they rational so really um, you can go back right to the foundations of the discipline you have people arguing about the extent to which you should have simple assumptions based on rational maximization versus having more uh, sort of psychological assumptions so I think uh, we use the term behavioral economics really to capture uh, a particular stream of that but I think uh, I think it is uh, eventually Sort of all economics will be be behavioural. Okay, so, so I suppose to break that down, standard economics, standard economists assume that people can make good decisions, and there's this nice framework that can say, well, this is how we make a good decision. But maybe behavioural econom- economists would say, well, some of the assumptions you're making in order to get there don't really tally with the way we think as human beings. Would that yeah. be correct? I mean, I, I, I you know, you, it's hard to give if you know you'd be in danger of giving a straw man in terms of capturing something like traditional economics or, or mainstream economics because it's also itself so so diverse but I, I I think for me the dividing line would be if you if you come at economics from a view that your core assumptions should be motivated by empirical studies right. of how people behave and that you you know you want to draw from things like anthropology and psychology and so on you're getting close to the definition of behavioral economics if you start from the viewpoint that a you know a well crafted set of assumptions can allow you then to build up a model uh, which you can subsequently use to do things with i think you're you're more squarely in the in the traditional approach and that, and that model had tended to be based on rational utility maximization and and producer maximization and the split i mean actually in the 20th century you had people like herbert simon <clears throat> who i guess was the really major pioneer in the 20th century of the approach that said, well, actually, people don't really maximise in that in the way that we have said that they they, they have to construct con- construct the options in different ways. So we started to talk about satisfi- satisfying rather than optimising, uh, and that opened the door to a lot of psychological work. And really, now what's happening is, uh, I mean, I've made the argument. I think really what's happening in behavioural economics, and people have started using the broader phrase behavioural science to capture it, is that you're seeing a sort of merger of economics, psychology, uh, neuroscience, anthropology and these disciplines into a, a framework for understanding markets and so on that um, is probably not well described as, as behavioural economics. We were tending to use the phrase behavioural science, which itself can mean a couple of different things, but, but, but you know, a lot of people are identifying with that paradigm at the moment, including uh, you're seeing a lot of applied work going on now in that area. People are people are taking approaches from economic, social psychology, cognitive psychology, ethnography, and sort of blending them together. Often powered by things like randomised trials, field studies, and so on, to try to say something about market allocation and distribution and those types of things in a way that's um, it's it's quite exciting, but but it's it's hard to categorise very cleanly. Okay, so it's more a sense of we're looking at how people make choices and then drawing on different different frameworks in this context would you, were you an economist by training or was it more did you come at it from the psychological perspective so from both i mean i, I i've always um both in my own personal career and also my sort of reading of the history of economics and psychology i've never fully recognized the distinction between them i mean they've peeled off from philosophy at different times and they you know you go back to the great economists like Edgeworth and Marshall and people like that were very heavily psychological. I mean, Marshall famously said that he wanted to be reincarnated as a psychologist and Edgeworth 
um, came up with indifference curves while while studying perceptual psychology. Uh, and there's actually some interesting stories there, and we'll come back to it at another stage. But yeah. similarly, my own view, um, I mean, I started off very interested in the psychology of recessions growing up in Ireland in the 80s. Right. Really started to look at, A, the consequences of them, how it affected folks who were made redundant, and B, like, what caused them? Like, how could you, you know, you, you had so many booms and busts. Uh, even as a child, you could see markets crashing, um, and I, I guess I've always come out from that point of view. So I studied psychology and economics in Trinity. So you were you were able to do a two subject moderatorship at that stage. I'd already been reading a lot. Um, my PhD then looked at uh, a set of studies called willingness to pay studies, where you try to recover demand for non market goods by asking people how much do you value them. Which which you know is an economic methodology. You 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 pull out all sorts of cost benefit parameters, but sure. it's fundamentally fundamentally psychological because you're asking people. You know, can you understand this problem? How do you think about it? And uh, Daniel, as I said, Daniel Kahneman, who won the Nobel, uh, and a lot of those people, it was actually true the willingness to pay. A lot of that stuff uh, sort of came into economics because people started to think about, well, how do we use psychological assessments, subjective self-reports for things like benefit damages appraisals, or sorry, damage appraisals or cost-benefit studies, yeah. and so on. So that's how I. So my first studies were looking at people valuing cultural goods broadcasting things like that and from that i really started to think more generally about how do people make these decisions um um you know at all uh, so a lot of my work's been in sort of measurement of sort of deep level preference okay. parameters and things like that so it's interesting you mention uh edward because as a longford man he, yes he that's right he doesn't get enough uh enough acknowledgement um everybody talks well edward edward's town named after the Edward family, family but yeah. everybody talks about Maria Edward, but they rarely mention Francis Edward. Yeah, I mean, he's, a, I don't know if it's a bit of a detour here, but he's a, he's a fascinating person. The late Dennis Caniff, uh, uh, who's fondly remembered by a lot of us here in the Irish economics community, he wrote a lovely paper about him. Um, I mean, I, I'm writing a book at the moment about the history of economics and psychology. Edward figures very heavily in it because he, he's, at, he's writing at the time where economics is still called political economy and is starting to form into what we now see as economics. So he came up with um, the foundations of general equilibrium theory. Um, he came up with indifference curves, so the foundations of consumer theory. He was actually doing it, believe it or not, while trying uh, to make a, a sort of fairly strange argument about Irish independence. And right. <laughs> uh, if Mathematical Psychics is a, is, a, is a wild book, really worth reading. Um, but he um, he came up with the idea of indifference curves, but he really believed that you could measure consumer, or believed that you should try at least to measure consumer preferences directly. So when he, if any of your listeners have studied economics and, and looked at how you build up consumer demand or something, that was actually uh, associated with somebody called Pareto, who came along and said, well, no, we shouldn't try to measure preferences directly and we should remove sort of psychology from this process. Whereas if, if Edgeworth's paradigm had sort of taken off, uh, economics would have been a much more psychological uh, endeavour. And it's actually, it's it, in some sense, it's one of the biggest historical interests, uh, most interesting things in the history of economic thought that you, at, 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 as psychology was becoming a discipline, you had some of the dominant figures in economics like Marshall and Edgeworth who were really interested in uh, psychology and it was just at that time that basically psychology got banished <laughs> right okay. so you know as it as you started to the, the sort of dominance of economics started to shift to the states people like samuelson right really started to move away from it and that's the sort of textbooks that we see from then on 
become much more like what we would now consider economics textbooks, which would be utility maximization with rational consumers and ordinality assumptions and all okay. these types of things. So more towards more structured approach, which is very easy to get nice mathematical functions and these sort of things. So it's, it's tractable. Yeah. I mean, I think what was happening was psychology was looking to biology and saying, you know, we really need to be doing a lot more of these sort of behavioral studies in labs and uh, increasingly like psychology were drifting towards animal models. Now you had also a long tradition of cognitive psychologists that rejoins again with, with behavioral economics in the sixties. But what economics was doing, I think, was really trying to establish itself as a science, an axiomatic science. I mean, many histories of this. Um, and, and, you know, like like any history, you, the basic overall narrative leaves out a lot because, you know, you look back at the Quarterly Journal of Economics or the JPE from that period, there are people, you know, talking about the psychology, uh, how why it's important to economics, people like Veblen and the institutional economists yeah. after that. like. But I would say the dominant um, textbook economics that we've all studied since then would have been um, would have been very much about the idea of rational utility maximizing consumers and producers interacting in markets with okay. you know good information and all of those types of things. Okay, so that leads us nicely into the current bog standard neoclassical economics, where we assume people are rational that that they have good information, that they can process this information well to make a good decision to maximise their welfare or, as economists like to call it, maximise their utility. Maybe then we can focus on what behavioural scientists do nowadays, how they are trying to perhaps incorporate a lot of these psychological elements that may have been discarded in the early stages of of economics. Um, And... My starting point in that regard would be this issue, issue of bounded rationality, that we're not as rational. We can't maximise utility, that there's some issues that that impinge our ability to, to um, think rationally. Uh, would this be a good place to start? I think so, yeah. I mean, my my problem, apologies to your listeners, is that, is that my history goes back to the Scottish Enlightenment. So I tend to get lost when I start to say, say to, you know, you can find so many historical precedences. But I actually think a good place to start would be in the 40s and 50s, where you had people like Marie Soleil in, in France looking at uncertainty. So why would it be the case that people would not necessarily maximise utility, but rather have very, very strong preferences to minimise uncertainty in, in, in particular circumstances? So he developed the LA paradox and eventually won the Nobel. I mean, he, he unfortunately, he didn't actually translate most a lot of his work or it wasn't translated into English for a okay. long time. So, so just to break that down, when you say maximise utility, it means do the best thing given what, what you know, as opposed to avoid risk, avoid bad outcomes. Yeah, I, I mean, I, so Milton Friedman famously said that, you know, we may not believe that people actually do this, but it, it's it's a good assumption to make. So what they were what they were basically saying was that people would in an unbiased fashion, accumulate all the information in the environment and then use that to build up a a profile of the different options available to them. And then they would attach a sort of utility or a value to each of these options. And then they would, you know, choose the one which maximises that value subject to the constraints that they have, such as income, wealth, prices uh, and all of those other uh, types of things. And then, you know, producers and consumers interacting together would come up with a set of prices and then they would change as technologies changed and so on. But uh, people like Herbert Simon uh, really started to say, look, we, we just don't think consumers do this. We, do, we, yeah. we think that they're forming all sorts of strategies and not just consumers, actually. So Simon, you know, uh, would have said the same about government agencies, businesses, that really what 
the, the, so so what the what what organizations do and individuals do is come up with the strategies to manage complexity and that those strategies may or may not be involved with maximizing some sort of underlying function they may they may be simply about satisfying a set of criteria and he uh, he developed many different uh, potential rules that people were following but but uh, I guess the upshot was that to understand decisions you not only had to understand how people maximized value but you had to understand well how did people come up with the options in the first place yeah and how did they how did they sort of filter through them and so on so yeah he he came up with bounded rationality satisfying the heuristics paradigm so when Daniel Kahneman wins the Nobel Prize in 2002, yeah. it's Herbert Simon he cites as saying right. that this this is the guy who really broke broke open the ground. And then people like Kahneman and Tversky began to ask in yeah. a lot more detail than what exactly are these strategies? So how do people, you know, how, if I were to ask your listeners, like, how do you know how long you're going to live? Is Trump yeah. going to get reelected? Um, all of these types of things like where are you how are you doing that so you have to form opinions on this to to think about investment returns and whether you take out insurance and what type of uh, consumer decisions you make but but where do you get that from and Callum Tversky basically said you're getting it from a whole set of human sort of psychological mechanisms that as I said sometimes could look like rationality so you might sometimes these lead you down the right path uh, and sometimes they give you completely biased uh, answers um, and uh, so th- so that that's really where it was in the sixties. Really, it really was presented as a challenge explicitly to the rationality assumptions. Um, okay. So just to um, delve into that a bit more, then is there any good examples that you, that come to mind when it comes to bounded rationality or these sort of rules of thumb that we use? Um, I mean, I guess the classic examples would have been, I mean, Herbert Simon did a lot of, uh, and, and a lot of his colleagues had done a lot of studies back in the day looking at like how people valued houses. So like the SRI right. at the moment, Pete Lone and his group do a lot of this type of work where people are actually far less sensitive to changes in price and attributes than, than you would expect them to be. Because really what they're doing is ra- rather than computing this big value function with lots of attributes of a house and so on, they're really looking yeah. at like, has it got a garden of a certain size? How many rooms does it have? And then, you know, once a set of houses meet that sort of criteria, they'll do some attempt at ranking them. But it, yeah. it's, it's something that looks very, very different than, let's say, if you've got a computer and you said, you know, here's 10 attributes and we want you to t- attach a precise value to each of these attributes and, and, a, and a precise costing to each of these attributes. Yeah. So you see, um, you know, you, you'll, see, you'll see pricing in markets looking very different than what you'd expect if... People were fully attentive to changes. The other one would be, I mean, nowadays, obviously, it's now such a vast literature, like people are looking at, um, you know, inattention to all sorts of attributes of products. Um, like the famous, the phrase they use in literature is shrouded attributes. Right. So that people tend to be uh, quite insensitive to like product add-ons. So, you know, you might give, you might be very sensitive to your coffee being 250 versus €3. Euro. But if, if if there's a, a a loan added onto your mortgage for insurance or something, or an insurance sorry insurance added added onto your mortgage and it's an extra two thousand euro, you'll be far less sensitive to that because it's tacked onto a bigger number. Yeah. And you see lots of things like that where, you know, people are more affected by relative um, amounts than they are by absolute amounts. Um, so one thing that people talk a lot about is this whole de- whole idea of nudges and that uh, we can sort of guide people towards maybe outcomes that are better 
better for them or better for society as a whole and so I wonder where does this fit into the whole behavioral economics? Yeah, so format? I guess I mean it kind of follows fairly closely from where we were. So as as Kahneman, Tversky, and a lot of others started to write a lot more about um, heuristics and biases and all of this type of stuff, like the fact that people mightn't be very good at making these complicated decisions. Uh, you can imagine it was controversial. Like there was a lot of back and forth in the literature, but it, you know as people started to accept more that people were subject to these sort of decision making um, biases. Uh, then people started to ask, well, what's the implications for economics? And pe- this is where Richard Taylor really came in and started to really say, look, this isn't just something that's psychologically interesting and something, you know, we, we you know, we'd read about it because we, we're interested. But, you know, so one argument would have been these are interesting, but they're quite idiosyncratic. They're not really systematic. Um, whereas Taylor really started to show it in, in real markets. So he started doing a lot of work on pensions, a lot of work on, on how traders behaved. Right. Uh, and then um, a lot of folks then started to say, well, actually, does this mean we become a lot more paternalistic? Does this mean that regulators and governments should ban a lot of options if it's shown that people are making bad choices? Or um, should we stick to a more libertarian approach? So where nudging came from, uh, there was a paper written uh, like the late 90s, which put forward this idea that we should try to intervene where folks look like they've got a particular bias while not impinging on other people. So it was called asymmetric paternalism. So it was um, Colin Kammerer and a few others. And that was the idea that, for example, you could auto-enroll people into pensions, but give them the option to opt out. So if it is really the case that people are just really bad at making pension decisions and auto-enrollment would benefit some people, you wouldn't be putting a huge cost on others who just didn't want a pension for a rational reason. And then Tyler and Sunstein wrote this book, called Libertarian Paternalism, um, which became a bestseller uh, all over the world. Um, now, the title mightn't, mightn't have been the most exciting to people, so yeah. they changed it to uh, on the advice of their publisher. And after, I think, about 10 rejections from other publishers, they changed it to Nudge, which try and got, got across the same message, which is yeah. that like uh, in the presence of psychological biases, it could be legitimate and welfare-promoting to move people in particular directions, either through uh, regulation or through moral suasion or these types of things. And that if you look at things like undersaving, if you look at the amount of regret on purchases of different types of insurance products, those types of things, and if you've got clear evidence that there's, you know, uh, detriment happening, that uh, you could could move people in in a direction while still respecting freedom of choice, um, and I think that's why it became popular. It yeah. offered a sort of way out from folks who were worried about being too paternalistic. But then ever since the debate has gone in, in both directions, some folks who think it's too paternalistic, like why are we doing all these things to other folks who think, yeah. you know, we should we should be doing much harder stuff. So it makes sense in the context of maybe automatic enrollment for pensions or maybe a sort of opt-out scheme for blood donation or organ donation, these sort of things. But then in the current climate where we have lots of big data and Google and Facebook taking all our data, um, could they nudge us towards ways that we don't know that are for their benefit? I mean, in in the way that they talk about nudges, they're talking about things that are welfare promoting. So like they're talking about things that you where a person has like some sort of underlying preference to do something. So most of us would like, you know, not to die in a car accident. We'd like to retire with a decent salary and so on and so forth. So technically speaking, you know, by nudge, they don't just mean influencing people's behavior. They mean influencing people's behavior with a, so so we, we, we've done something here, like we've written a sort of welfare framework, a ethics framework for thinking about these types of things. But the, the flip side, like you say, is, and this goes again back to debates that have been had for 
at least a century at this stage that as you're seeing psychologists big data folks and so on proliferating um um What's the difference between, let's say, using data to price discriminate versus using data to manipulate people? So, and we can think of lots of examples where, if a if a if a if a large firm has access to a large amount of data on individuals, it could use it to price uh, to them individually. So, Obama even had an executive um, order on this to to discuss it at one stage. I mean, I think it's one of the biggest issues of our time. Actually, is how we regulate. Yeah. Uh, behavioral influence uh, through digital algorithmic channels um, and I think behavioral economics is a big part of that I mean it's not the only thing that's there you need a lot of folks who work on you know uh, cyber security and all of those types of issues but I, but I actually think um, if you look at something like Facebook I mean to what extent if they are using algorithms that are targeting particular folks in ways that keep them on the app are on the on the site a lot a lot longer than would be let's say optimal for them. Yeah, I mean, do you regulate that? Is that I mean, in in some sense, it's an internality. I mean, it's a, as in it's it's a it's a it's a, it's a cost you're placing on yourself by yeah. your own behaviour. Um, and, and and you know, governments are sometimes reluctant to step in uh, where there's not a clear externality. Like with something like drinking or smoking, I mean, dr- you drinking you can point to drunk driving, yeah. smoking you can point to secondhand smoke. And if you think about it, even smoking bans are usually motivated explicitly at least by worker safety. Whereas with something like targeting somebody to buy a, a bad mortgage or targeting somebody to you know use their credit card in ways that will cost them a lot of money yeah i think a lot of folks are a lot of jurisdictions are unwilling to sort of step off the fence and say we actually want to regulate this in a yeah in a hard way and obviously the industry itself has a, has a strong interest for that not to happen it is an interesting interesting topic because so far as you say you get these notifications to interrupt your your day but we could be getting to the stage where uh it might have some sort of productivity impact that you're always getting interrupted and you're not able to concentrate when you're supposed to be concentrating. And perhaps there's an economic motivation behind maybe regulating these sort of not- notifications. It seems a bit like the Wild West, I suppose. Quite yeah, I, 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 I personally think the, the, the biggest implication for me for behavioural, the, the sort of behavioural turn, if you want to call it that, in economics and regulation is that it's letting us ask these questions yeah. in a way that you're no longer able to simply say, well, people are rational. Um, I mean, these are, I mean, in some sense, these are behavior learning mechanisms that would have been known to psychologists studying everything from pigeons to humans going back literally over yeah. a century at this stage, like reinforcement learning and so on and so forth. Um, but so, but I think it lets us think uh, more clearly about uh, how we'd regulate some of these things. For me, I am always looking for cases where individual Manipulation also interacts with wide-scale societal, macro-societal and macroeconomic repercussions. So I, 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 I'm certainly making the case in a couple of cases that the financial industry, we need to be a lot harder in terms of regulating behavioural manipulation in the financial industry because it will add up. So when you say behavioural manipulation in the financial industry... Uh, I would say things like product features that lock people into inappropriate contracts over long periods right. without real evidence they understood what they were going in for, um, behavioural sales techniques that are focused very much on selling the product rather than matching the consumer based on risk profiles and things right. like that. Now, whether you want to go as far as to say that you know it should be regulated almost like medicines where you, know, you, you, you would place a strong onus on matching folks that are right medicine rather than just necessarily the one that's okay so matching somebody for example to a mortgage who's able to who has a good chance of repaying the type of mortgage yeah and also being very clear that 
um, you know, for, for example, we see things like cashback mortgages now where uh, I, I think are, de- are definitely worth thinking how we regulate products like that. So this sort of leads us into other issues like, for example, salience and discounting. So w- w- does that touch on, on these sort of things? T- touches factors? exactly. I mean, uh, cashback mortgages are basically, for the most part, tapping at present bias so, uh, and tap- tapping at short-term salience, uh, even the name. So Michael King and Trinity wrote a really nice piece of research on this uh, recently. Uh, now, the, 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 in any given case, you have so many complicated factors that will be involved. But I think um, I think it is just worth thinking a lot more clearly on you know what's fair marketing. I mean, to some extent, companies have a have a, a right to differentiate their products and to put their products out there and make them salient and so on and so forth. Versus, at what stage does it? lead to consumer detriment and on a broader level at what stage does that weaken the sort of risk profile of the country as a whole or the the jurisdiction as a whole depending on where you are uh, I think gambling is another one where yeah. you really need to think about this in the sense that we don't have any regulatory framework at all for the types of behavioural influence that go on that market and you can say well it's individual consumer choice and so on and so forth but yeah. but if you're if you are um, you know if you if if, if if that leads to, to sort of widespread weakening of household balance sheets, consumer detriment, uh, and so on, like um, it's, um, I think it's up for debate as to what role regulator and government should play in there. Mm. Maybe we could just touch on maybe some other issues or other aspects of behavioural economics that people might not be familiar with. I suppose one thing that, that, that came to mind is, is something like uh, choice overload. So I think economists would traditionally believe that more choice is better, that you can help find the outcome that's that's best for you. But I always find nowadays when I'm watching uh, TV on Netflix, for example, I spend yeah. half an hour <clears throat> flicking, whereas that could have been in the old days, half an hour where I'd be watching a program that I just happened to have. So that was probably a better use of my time. So Yeah, yeah. I mean, Netflix, we, we did a study here, uh, Leo, Leo Lattis, my colleague, uh, looking at, uh, we, do, we do a lot of work on interviewing people in the process of making choices and trying to understand what's going on when they're doing it. So uh, I think in his study... Uh, about if you're if you're binge watching, I think up to about three people were happy enough, and then once it, once it got to four episodes, <laughs> you said the the guilt and the pointlessness started to kick in a little bit. Uh, certainly something I, uh, I'm not un, uh, not unknown to do myself, but I I think the there is a lot of work at the moment about uh, choice overload. I mean, there was a famous book and art, an article written a few years ago which sort of put the message out that more choice was bad. You know, in the, there was some famous studies on, on jams, for example, that people would just withdraw from the choice process. I think as that literature has matured, it, it's not that more choice is bad. It's that, you know, the assumption that more choice is good is certainly questionable. Really what tends yeah. to happen is it depends on the domain, it depends on how it's phrased, it depends on the complexity and your capacity to manage it yeah. and all of these types of things. So like, for example, like I know there's, I know from, you know, non-published literature, there's certainly been some cases where companies have been advised to reduce the number of choices on their website and things like that and have rapidly, you know, uh, um, made a rebound from that once this right. other sales drop. Um, I, I would say like for something like pensions, there's quite a bit of evidence that people prefer to have smaller number of options framed to them. Yeah. For stuff like beer or even something like Netflix, I, 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 there's been quite a few like meta-analyses of these types of things. I don't find it very convincing. I mean, I would say it's not, I mean, in some sense, we probably overestimate the value of choice. Yeah. But I don't think there's really a strong evidence to say that, you know, You'd be happier if there was like five options on your Netflix rather than rather than you know five million. 
It's just that you're probably not going to be that much happier if it's five million versus five. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, there's this whole fear of missing out or regret yeah. that basically the regret that you've, you've made a, a poor choice. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I think in some sense, there's one fair enough critique that some neoclassical scholars would make is that we we we've a lot of free. F- free-floating sort of parameters for want of a better phrase so like yeah once you start introducing potential regret or all these things uh, but I mean for me as a on a practical basis I do think you, you know these things thing, things do differ across markets and it's uh, if you're doing a market study for example I think it's important to understand the context of it the complexity of it the type of choices that people are making rather than just assuming that yeah. Uh, they're making a decision in a particular way. Uh, one, so one other issue then that, that that struck me, I saw a paper, I'm sure it's one you're, you're very familiar with, on information avoidance. And basically, I think it was in relation to the stock market, where if the stock market is doing bad, people are less inclined to check how their stocks are doing yeah. than if the stock market is doing good. And this is probably the exact time where you should be keeping an eye on things. Yeah, and again, it uh, goes back to the, I mean, the old, in general, like um, there's a sort of, Obviously, there was a massive literature on information, like people like Stiglitz and, and Akerlof and all these people. But yeah. the, the, what you would think of psychological or behavioural information literature is really starting to look at how just human beings respond to information and seek it out and so on. And and you you uncover like a wider set of motivations for, as I said, you like, for example, I, I exercise a lot and I like checking my Fitbit because <laughs> it's telling me I'm doing good stuff. Whereas uh, I hate I, I hate recording calories because uh, I'm not good on the diet side. And you'll see a lot of that uh, type of uh, stuff in the literature that people will under certain circumstances avoid um seeking information that would be negative to them. I mean, I guess the very classic one in the literature is confirmation bias. Yeah. That, you know, people start with uh, a set of priors and instead of updating them like you were supposed to do as a, as a statistician, they'll tend to seek information that sort of confirmed them because it's, it's uncomfortable to admit that you were wrong right? and so on and so forth. Uh, and I think increasingly uh, a lot of folks have been looking at, for example, in a polarised political world, that people will be constantly seeking information that will validate. And it, it's even very subtle now. There's a lot of work now to suggest that we operate on almost two levels. Like we can sometimes find ourselves endorsing things and publicly committing to things that even at some level we don't believe yeah. because we're trying to keep face and we're maintaining a consistency of approach. And it's more like a statement of values. And I think in some sense that gets frightening because then, you know, your capacity for learning uh, completely contracts. So, I mean, yeah. uh, people like Sunstein and so on have been just talking about that as being the biggest threat to dem- democracy and markets and all of these types of things would be, you know, people just in- in- encasing themselves in a sort of impenetrable wall of, yeah. of you know, self-constructed fact that they can then perpetuate on the internet. That, that's a risk in, in, in an isolated case. But then when you think about how that person doesn't live in a vacuum, they interact with other people and then this creates sort of a... A network effect, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, so the fear, I guess, or the, the, the one dynamic of it, and this goes back to a lot of psychological work and a lot of work that's been done at the moment, is that it creates polarisation, that in, in the process of seeking out information, you actually become more, you go more in the direction of travel rather than in the other way around. And, uh, I mean, I guess it's easy enough to sort of craft that onto things like Brexit and Trump and uh, other things that are happening um, I'm, we're working on a large project at the moment on uh, what it implies for sort of led by the philosophy department, but we have a behavioural and experimental role in it, looking at what's the standing of sort of expert judgment now. So if you take something like climate change, yeah. you know, really, you know, if a senior climate change scientist comes out and says something, 
to what extent does that travel across pre-existing beliefs so to what extent now are science communications basically and we take vaccinations being another example those types of things so to what extent in the world that we live in now do is the paradigm of the expert kind of sending information to the public is that sort of collapsed really Uh, i mean i've used the i give a communications workshop myself where i talk to people about you know um that 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 that, that sort of paradigm is gone um or at least the the way that it operates is very very different so you start thinking about well what is the role of a sort of experts and to what extent do they need to be more authentic and get into the scrum and all of that type of stuff really you know that that influencing people's um, views becomes a much more complicated social process than simply we issued a press release based on the findings, you know. Okay, so we've touched on the different ways in which behavioural economics can manifest itself. So one thing that comes to mind uh, when I think about it is the fact that it tends to be this this collection of observations as opposed to maybe a neat theoretical framework and the standard economic theory would allows for this sort of neat framework that we can we can predict things with with relative ease because we have this framework in place. Now, behavioral economics tells us well in some cases that framework will give you incorrect predictions, biased predictions. So, where does that leave us? Are we creating a new economic framework? Do we need a new framework to incorporate these behavioral aspects, or? Can we augment our existing framework to take into account these uh, these things we're learning through behavioural economics? Yeah, I mean, I think there's uh, sort of two emerging streams in that. So one would be uh, associated with some of the top, you know, people likely to win the Nobel in economics in the next few years, like people like David Leibson and, and Matthew Rabin and so on. And they would argue that really what's happened hasn't been this complete revolution. All that's happened yeah. is... The, you know, we've added things to the standard way of thinking about economics. So, for example, it, it goes back decades that people couldn't really understand why it was that people had a higher, um, you know, had to be paid more to give something up than they would be willing to pay for it in the first place. So the, the willingness to pay, willingness to accept gap and the endowment effect sure. and all these things, loss aversion. And as you mentioned earlier, present bias. So if I offer you money now versus money tomorrow, you'd be much more likely to take it now. Whereas if I offered you money in a year versus a year in a day, you're happy to wait today. Yeah. So what one thing that's happening is that those core, very core economic parameters are being built in to think about pension systems. So if you take something like pension auto-enrolment um, or, or uh, locking people into pensions and so on, these come from what are really, what you, whatever you want to call them, traditional mathematical economic models that have been augmented with sort of decades of literature looking at loss aversion present bias and so on and what emerges emerges from that looks more or less like what you would think of as an economics but on on the second point of view what's happening is something i think a bit a bit bigger and a bit more chaotic uh which is that uh in some sense behavioral economics says uh my friend pete lund uses that phrase trojan horse has acted as a trojan horse that you you will show up to behavioral economics talk and you'll see that there'll be folks from psychology from anthropology from empirical marketing literatures um, all sorts of other sort of literatures that look in deep at, at cognitive processes uh, and that has and social psychologists and all of these and what they're saying is that well actually you know you need a framework that allows you to evaluate policy effects and do cost benefit and so on and so forth but you've got to blow open the utility function you've got to really look uh, almost very context level stuff much wider set of methodologies bringing in field experiments bringing in qualitative methods okay. 
Uh, and that becomes, the tension there becomes, you can't model that in the traditional way that economists would. You're not yes. going to come up with these very neat market existence solutions and so on and so forth. The advantage, I, I guess, is that it allows you to bootstrap things in markets. So if you're talking about why some markets don't work, so Esther Dufflow has used the phrase, you know, it would be good if economists became a bit more like plumbers. So Keynes had famously right. said it'd be great if we're like dentists, whereas <laughs> so that economists would increasingly do experiments, would, you know, if a market, like for example, we, we see something like some markets, you don't see any switching in it. And you look at the prices and you look at all these things and it looks like there should be switching, but you don't see much. Or you see like, you know, you, you, you'll in, introduce lots of incentives to take up pensions and it doesn't have much of an effect, whereas pension auto enrollment has a big effect. So you try to go in and understand, well, what's going on there, interview people, discuss it. Okay. Um, so now, more like plumbers in the sense that trying and failing and f- trying to figure out... Tinkering, tinkering bringing yeah. in stuff from other areas, like yeah. really trying to really trying to understand these markets, interviewing people more. Like Danny Blanchflower, who uh, I worked with a lot in Sterling, he uses the phrase like, uh, or I think he adapted it, but he's, he's always using it, the phrase, the economics of walking about and talking to people. And really just yeah. trying to understand what these things... Now, yeah. I would say we're at the stage where... Um, I mean, I, I don't think there's been a time in the history of, of economics and psychology. I think this is going way back to when before the disciplines were formed. That there's never been a time where you've seen more interest in that in terms of like economists at the top end yeah. of the discipline uh, programs being set up all across the world. You're talking about thousands of people working on this. Um, so whether it sort of fizzles out or whether it de- becomes a sort of very general, uh, whether it generates sort of general theoretical uh, approaches to um, th- things that economists are interested in. Um, I think that's still in play to an extent. Um, but I would say this is very long lasting. You know, this yeah. is not something that's going to be a year or two. This is something people are going to be working on for the next decade at least if you look at what's coming out of the the top US PhD programs uh, and you look at what policymakers have become quite interested in uh, so I think it's actually it's a very exciting uh, time and it, it does get into kind of core existential questions like climate change you know sure, yeah. are models with prices you know sufficient to think about these things or do you really need very elaborated models of how you communicate to, to people to be built into these sort of markets do you need yeah. very in-depth understanding of sort of social context to understand how economic incentives work in those sort of markets yeah it seems to be that maybe in the old days when when economics was developing it was very it was pen and paper it was sort of theory models that were very easy to write down and and the maths was simple whereas now we're learning more and we're moving more towards what we see what we can test what we can do experiments on and then this seems to be a part of that that transition in that sense. Yeah, I think so. I mean, one thing that's exciting me as an as a sort of educator is I'm seeing. So we set up the MSc in behavioural economics here, uh, and I teach uh, behavioural economics. And we've set up a new experimental lab here, and we, our students are spending a lot of time in the lab. And we're starting to see this interesting group of students emerging who are, you know, they are economists. I mean, they they they, they look and talk yeah. whatever economist looks like but you know what I mean when you talk to them they they sound like economics MSc students but they've spent a lot of time in the lab and they've spent a lot of time like really looking at survey measurement really looking at how you measure preferences um and how you know t- actually getting their hands dirty with with data and interviewing people and things like that and I th- I think they're going to be a very interesting addition to regulation and so on I think they will have a they will have a an economist sort of instinct for for setting out what a market is and how they operate, but they will have this kind of desire to go in and probe a little more what's actually happening uh, in in terms of uh, psychological aspects of those uh, markets. And you're also starting to see 
uh, folks from psychology in particular, but also other behavioral sciences end up in areas that would have been traditionally dominated by economics and law. And I think they're shaking them up a little bit. I think I think they go in and their their instinct is to ask things like, you know, why are people behaving in that particular way? Is there something else in there? Okay, as opposed to assuming that the behave in in a rational way or yeah and assuming that the market can be characterized by traditional economic parameters that there could be other stuff in there and i i mean you you know can point you to a lot of good papers that have merged those approaches and you know done so and and you're seeing now dozens of organizations across the world including places like revenue in ireland or the sustainable uh, energy authority who've who've built these sort of teams into their practice um and i think the um, you know, the, the the interesting thing over the next couple of years is how sort of generalised models will emerge. And we're already seeing a lot of models emerging. Um, I would say some of them are sort of early stage uh, and some of them, you know, some are psychological models that have been around for decades. But when I say models emerging, I mean, you know, models that combining a sort of economic framework with ideas from these literatures. So I don't mean just simply taking you know, a, a well-worn health psychology framework from that discipline and, and applying it to uh, a health question. I mean more if, if I'm thinking in general about health resource allocation sure. in an economic framework and I want to build in the fact that people might be approaching a health decision with all of these things you talked about, like information avoidance, present bias, peer influence and so on and so forth. Like how do we, where does where does that take us and, and what will textbooks look like in 10 years time when... Yeah. when there's been thousands of studies done in in those areas. Okay, so I, we're running out of time now, so I'll just ask one final question. In terms of uh, behavioural economics and your day-to-day life, is there anything that, that you can pick out? So right? thinking like a behavioural economist has really made my life a bit easier, or is there anything that you can say, thinking like a behavioural economist, I know that this is wrong, but yet I still make these... these uh, oh, yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing about this is, you know, we, we, we do a lot of studies on people's sort of behavioural dispositions. So we look a lot at folks, like people's capacity to understand different types of economic decisions, but also like self-control. So someone like me, there's a whole range of things that I know I should do yeah. and regret not doing, even as I'm, you know, yeah, even as I'm talking. I mean, I've had students come up to me after lectures who've who said that like after one of my lectures, they went back and switched all their sort of electricity products and all that and saved uh, and saved lots of money. Uh, I, I think that what behavior, I mean, I always say to my students, read the tabloids every day. Right. And look at look at how stuff is advertised and so on. Uh, it, for me, behavioral economics it, it it does make me constantly aware of the nature of influence and 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 to that extent, it it, it makes me always kind of look at my own behavior and log it. But it, but I think it also it's it's a fascinating window just to look at um, the world and see it as that you know there's there's all sorts of reasons why options are framed to you in a certain way. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a, it's it's actually probably the biggest question, or one of the biggest questions, is whether knowing this makes you immune to these types of influences. Because if you look at things like financial education, and I've often said, you know, we shouldn't, we should be teaching. Okay, it's okay to teach teenagers APRs and things like that, but really, it's fascinating to teach them how marketing works, how yeah. behavioural influence works. Uh, so that they become better, more savvy. Um, people like Igor Enser have used the phrase risk savvy. Um, but whether I mean it's not at all clear. I think if you are, if you were to actually take you know a hundred of, of the most knowledgeable behavioural economists in the world and put them beside a hundred 
random members of the public, I'm not sure they would look too much more rational in their behaviour. I mean, one reason I say that is if you actually look at financial advisors in countries where they're supposed to disclose their investments. So there's a famous one from Canada recently which showed they were doing an awful lot of the things that... I mean, they'll be much better at calculating returns. They'll be much, you know, arithmetically quicker. But when it came to things like chasing past returns or not being very sensitive to fees or all of these things that are kind of classic or under diversification, all these sort of classic behavioral biases, they were tending to happen in in the financial advisors as much as they were. And we've seen in recent banking crises, you know, you get herding, you get all of these sort of um, psychological effects. So, um, um, yeah, in answer to your question, I see I see these influences everywhere. I think sometimes they've helped me mm. uh, to avoid them, but I, I think it's uh, I think there's a there's a I'll put it this way there's an awful lot of a behavioural chain between being aware that you're biased and changing and your changing, behaviour. Yes, I, I definitely. Anyway, okay, Liam, thank you very much. I really no, no, thank you. So my thanks to Liam for such an informative discussion. Um, I think it was a great primer in behavioural economics and all going well, I hope to dig a bit deeper into the applications of this in future episodes. So I'll just leave you with a public service announcement. If you're enjoying the podcast, it would really help if you could leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. I know not everybody is an Apple user, but if you are, a quick flick of a five-star rating would really go a long way. We don't run ads, we don't have a sponsor. Um, and it would really mean a lot if you could give us a good rating there on Apple Podcasts. So until next week, thank you very much and all the best. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.